You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from Tuesday the 16th of January. Fantastic to have you with us. Uh, And today we actually broadcasted our show live from Intersec, the world's leading trade fair for safety, security and fire protection. So as you can imagine, we had a big focus on security of all sorts on the show today, including the impact that quantum computing is likely to have on cyber security, indeed on world security. We heard from one of the world's preeminent quantum mechanics experts, Professor Jose Ignacio Latore. He's from Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute. Meanwhile, the head of Heathrow's Fire and Rescue Service, Gary Bartram, told us how he keeps the world's second biggest airport safe. Plus, we looked at the biggest concerns for the fire safety industry with Gary Sherrington Boyd from Firetech. And as homes in an Icelandic town start to be subsumed by lava, we got the very latest from a journalist on the ground. Meanwhile, sleep tourism is on the rise. That is according to Skyscanner. We found out their top travel trends for 2024. And we considered whether or not those smart speakers in our homes could be used to remotely monitor domestic violence. It was a really interesting conversation and fantastic to get Professor Rob Sparrow from the Monash Data Futures Institute on the radio. Plus, Chris McCarty brought us up to date with everything in the sporting world, uh, including all the football news. From the Dubai World Trade Centre. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hey there, welcome back to the programme. My goodness me, it is already busy down here at Intersec. I'm telling you, uh, people from the fire and security services like to hit the ground running. I've just done a little bit of a tour of Hall 3. I've popped into Hall 2 as well. Uh, And I have to say the stands are busy, visitors are already pouring in, and there is a lot going on down here. Now, if you don't know about Intersec, it's basically the world's leading trade fair for safety, security, and fire protection. 25th anniversary, uh, it's got over 1,000 exhibiting companies, 10,000 leading brands and products showcased across 12 halls down here at the Dubai World Trade Center. Plus, and this is what gets us really excited on the agenda, 150 speakers hosting sessions on fire and rescue, defense, and cybersecurity. And really some of the world's most preeminent experts have come into town for this event. And I'm very much looking forward to, to grabbing a few of them and getting them on the radio. And in fact, one of the big topics that people are talking about here, which is absolutely unexpected, I thought it would be to be honest, sprinklers and fire extinguishers. But it's not. It's a lot, it's a lot more technical than that. They are, because one of the things, big topics, is quantum computing. Um, I didn't think that that was a defense question. I thought that was a sort of tech question. I thought it would suit Jitex more. But actually, it, it promises to entirely disrupt online security, as well as scientific research. Uh, it's going to disrupt cryptography. It's going to disrupt finance, supply chains, logistics. It's also going to hopefully make drug discovery a lot easier. And Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute here has actually been developing a quantum computer for more than three years. Do you know what one is? I haven't got the slightest idea. And, and so when I got Professor Jose Ignacio Latore on the line, um, he's chief researcher of the Quantum Research Center there um, and one of the world's foremost experts on quantum mechanics and the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, I basically got him on the show uh, in order to, to primarily ask what on earth is a quantum computer. And he thankfully started by explaining the concept and how it's going to change the entire world as we know it. Quantum computing is an effort of humanity to manipulate atoms, photons, electrons, so the elementary particles that constitute matter, to perform computations. So we are instrumenting nature to serve our purposes for computing and applications of computing, such as drug discovery or optimization of finances or very many different problems which will benefit from quantum computing. Is it very difficult to create a quantum computer? 
it is very difficult to create a quantum computer. There are a number of strategies. We are trying all of them in the planet Earth, and there is a real competition among them. So there is a race to build a quantum computer, a powerful quantum computer. As of today, we only have very, very, very elementary prototypes. We don't have a real quantum computer, but we are fighting. We will make it, believe me. And I know yeah. that Abu Dhabi is very keen to be at the forefront of this. And in fact, you know, announced the plan to make a quantum computer a, a couple of years ago. So how much progress is being made here in the Middle East by you and your team? Well, we have done a lot of progress in Abu Dhabi. The idea is that TII, the Technology Innovation Institute in Abu Dhabi, was created. And the first six centers, one of them was for quantum. From the day one that uh, we started with nothing, with a table, okay? I invite everybody to come to Abu Dhabi and see our laboratory and our computers. And you will see it's very impressive. We have now three labs one for quantum computing, one for quantum communication, one for quantum sensing, and we also have a clean room where we make our chips. So we already have chips made in, in the UAE. This has been an enormous effort, may I say. The first piece of the effort is to recruit talented people from all over the world. And by now we have 85 quantum scientists may I say also from more than 20 countries. And we are focusing on uh, what is called superconducting qubits. That's what we are fabricating in TII. We also work with many companies and uh, universities from overseas. So we believe that TII and the Quantum Research Center should be neutral place. Uh, where all the tensions, the political tensions in the planet should not take place there. I want to emphasize this idea of neutrality plus protected qubits. So if you come to us to work with us, your knowledge will be preserved. Okay, uh, this is the second idea. We want to be neutral and respectful for the technologies of the people. And so far we are managing. We have qubits uh, at this moment from Finland, from Netherlands, from Spain, we have now from China, and hopefully in the future, we will have more countries. I get a sense there of the potential importance of what you're creating, that there is a concern potentially in some countries that if one place gets it first, then you'll blow everyone else out of the water. And I mean that colloquially, not literally. You are right. It's a main concern. I mean, how can I put it? A quantum computer has the very first application, which is to break the cybersecurity protocols we are using nowadays. So when you connect to the bank yourself, when you check your account, there is a set of instructions going back and forth to set up a private key. The keys that we use nowadays in our transactions are as difficult as all the computers in the planet working for the age of the universe. That is a typical time it is needed to break a key nowadays. A quantum computer would do it in a short time. So, you know, if you have a quantum computer, you break the economy of another country. You break the uh, secrets, you break the military secrets, you, you, you break the backups, you break the social networks, everything. We need secrecy. Okay, our life is based on secrecy. So having a quantum computer is some amount of having power, but not power in a moderate scale. <laughs> it's power in the 21st century scale. So there is a enormous race between the states, US, between China and Europe. Ahead of everybody is US. China is lagging behind. Europe is lagging behind. The surprise is how fast China is moving. Very spectacular. People were sent more than 10 years ago to get their PhDs in US and European universities, and they came back and they managed to transform the science of their country. So it is quite a hectic time, may I say. It's also very interesting. In the last year, I've welcomed 
more than a hundred delegations checking what we are doing, how we are doing, how far we are. And I can mention you that they include every military sector in the planet, every financial sector. I mean, it sounds more and more like the plot of a spy movie, I have to admit, except it's real life. And you guys will one day create a quantum computer. How soon is that going to happen? How soon have we got this potentially real apocalypse, Mm. non-secrecy moment? Well, you're you're trillion dollar questions. (laughs) When? (laughs) It's very difficult to predict when you deal with basic science, because basic science is always understanding the principles, but then finding the correct mechanism to implement it in a good way. So we have made quantum computers but they are not good enough. So the proof of concept is there. We do have quantum computers, but they are not good enough. If I go back to classical computing, the situation we have now is comparable to the time in the 30s. They were the first prototypes of what a computer could be. It took to reach the middle 40s to create the transistor. And once the transistor was created, then it was exponential. So we are at that stage. We are trying at least five technologies in parallel. None of them work so far to satisfaction, may I say. So when you ask me when, how do I know? This is why the countries, all countries are investing. Many people like to use the word quantum ready. So if there is something happening, I'm ready. I'm ready to jump. Okay. Now, If the success takes place in the public sector, it will be published. And therefore, it will be common knowledge for humanity. It will be open source. If the knowledge is achieved by a corporation, it will be proprietary. So this is one of the few times that humanity is facing this problem. Okay, That maybe a big jump ahead in science might be private, not public. Till now, everything has been public. All the DNA discovery, the WWW was created at CERN. So that's why you don't pay anything to send an email. The mapping of the genome was finally done open source. So that's why you don't pay money for certain therapies that there are no rights in knowing what is the genome. So in this sense, definitely a piece of my heart would like to be convinced that knowledge will be shared and will be common to all of us. Okay, I I think it would be a major political disruption for the planet. That is Professor Jose Ignacio Latore. He is chief researcher of the Quantum Research Center, one of the world's foremost experts on quantum mechanics and the ethics of artificial intelligence. Uh, He is from Abu Dhabi's Technology Innovation Institute. And I don't know about you, but uh, that interview was probably one of the most interview inter- interesting conversations I've had in a long, long while. From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is The Agenda on Dubai I-103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda, coming to you, as you just heard, live from Intersec. It is the world's leading trade fair for safety, security and fire protection. Now... One of the major topics here at the conference is cybersecurity. And as you can imagine, there are literally, I mean, there's, there's a whole hall, frankly, of ex- exhibitors offering software to protect your systems. Uh, I've, just, I've just done a little bit of a tour around them. Um, we're going to turn our attention now to a fascinating study, though, that comes out of Australia that suggests um, that in some ways overcoming that cybersecurity could help with women who are the victims of domestic violence. It all sort of centers around the smart speakers that we already have in our homes. Things like, um, do you have one of those Amazon Dot, Amazon Alexa things? We've got one in the house. Um, And oddly enough, I've always sort of slightly worried about whether or not it's listening to us because, of course, by its very nature, it is supposed to listen to you when you ask it to do stuff. But experts are now exploring the idea that software on those devices could potentially be programmed to 
register or record screams or shouts and even potentially to automatically contact the police. Now, what are your immediate reactions to this? You're like, whoa, this is way too big, brother. This feels like surveillance. Um, But with one in three women experiencing domestic violence, some argue that it's time for this big sister type technology. Very tricky topic, one that the Monash Data Futures Institute in Australia is considering. And joining me from there is Professor Rob Sparrow. Now, he specializes in the real world ethical implications of adopting new technologies such as this. Um, Professor Sparrow, thank you so much for joining me on Teams. Can you talk me through whether or not these smart speakers are actually already constantly surveilling us? Because I have to admit, my instinctive reaction was a bit sort of nervous. Well, if you can wake them up by speaking to them, which of course you can, they are listening to you all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that they're uh, analysing and recording everything that you say, but they are clearly always on devices because you can wake them up by saying, you know, hey Alexa or hey Siri or hey Google uh, or whatever your keywords are. Uh, So yes, they are listening uh, all the time. Both creepy and slightly daunting, I would suggest. But of course, that is the deal with this new technology. You know, if you want it to be useful, then you have to sort of give up a certain amount of your privacy, I guess. Uh, I mean, this concept is... um, it, it, do you know, I mean, because as a woman, obviously my immediate reaction is that I think it's a really good idea, but I cannot think of actually how this big sister style software would actually work in a, in a sort of practical fashion. But you guys have looked into it in some detail, haven't you? Uh, we have looked into it in some detail. We looked into it because we found other people were already developing Uh, this technology and perhaps a slight change of context would help if I said here's a technology that can tell you if someone breaks into your house while you're away uh, people would think great and in fact that you know there's various iterations of that technology uh, already available you'll get a ping to your phone if the camera at home detects something strange happening in your house so that technology could be used or that and similar technologies could be used to protect people uh, while they were at home. And we found, for instance, a patent uh, by engineers at Google saying that they would use this system to detect what they described as mischief. Uh, The example they used were your teenage kids breaking into the liquor cabinet and then locking the doors to prevent them from uh, doing that. Uh, We found researchers who are indeed Uh, developing the capacity to detect screaming, banging, crashing, gunshots. These systems can already make phone calls for you. So put that all together. If the smart speaker in your home detects that someone is attacking someone at home, perhaps it should call the police. Is the idea that the speakers would be used to provide evidence perhaps sort of in situations where women are are unwilling to do so because the the reality is it's a bust flush the first time it's used right because you know any man or any criminal would immediately get rid of the speaker as soon as he knew it was being used to this to this measure so to be clear we don't think that this is a good solution to domestic violence we think uh, as to other people working in the fields that gendered violence against women is a product of gender relations in society more generally. Uh, To tackle it, you need to look at uh, culture, economics, law uh, more generally. And clearly, uh, women can be assaulted outside of the home as well as in the home. So this isn't going to protect everyone uh, all the time. But if it is a default feature on a smart speaker system, Uh, that it uh, alerts someone if it detects violence, Uh, we think that that would have both a deterrent effect and also might serve to save the lives of some women. Absolutely fascinating and certainly food for thought as we go around um, this security conference that we're all at here. Uh, Certainly 
certainly a different way of using the technology uh, and a really, really fascinating topic. So thank you so much for joining us on the line. That was Professor Rob Sparrow there. He is a professor of philosophy at the Monash Data Futures Institute in Australia. From the Dubai World Trade Centre. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the program. Yes, as you can hear, we are live from the Dubai World Trade Center today because Intersec is ongoing. It actually opened first thing this morning. It is the world's leading trade fair for safety, security and fire protection. It's actually the 25th anniversary of the event. Uh, And I have to say, I've been walking around and sort of finding out a bit more about the event. There's a thousand exhibiting companies, 10,000 leading brands and products all being showcased across 12 halls down here. Uh, It's really busy, you know. Often it takes a bit of time for for an event to get going, but not the case for Intersec. They've really hit the ground running here. And actually, one of the exhibitors here is uh, a sort of well, I mean, it's an international company with a very sort of lo- good local presence. Uh, it's Firetech Middle East, and I'm joined right here by Gary Sherrington Boyd. He's the sales director, in fact, for Firetech Middle East and Africa. And it's lovely to have you join us. Hello. Thank you. How are you? It's good to very see you. Very well indeed. This is definitely your spiritual home, isn't it, yeah, Intersec? Yeah. It's, it's is, your wheelhouse. This is what we look forward to every year. Really? Yeah, Christmas, January, Intersec. And is it a big event? I suppose it. Ha- you know, it, yep. it, it does it. Does it genuinely bring everyone together in the industry? It really does because because um, it's Dubai. You get everyone coming in from Africa, from Europe, from the US. We've got some guys coming in from the US for tomorrow. It's it's so easy to get here, um, visas and all that sort of stuff. It's it's a real hub of fire security and and, and awareness around it. New products. It's huge. Um, there's a couple of big um, exhibitions in Europe. You get Intershuts in uh, Germany every five years, um, and you get some stuff in the UK, but I, I would pitch this as one of, the, one of the biggest. So you've got everyone from the fire industry coming together. What are the major challenges facing the sector at the moment? Well, you know, what are the hot topics of conversation when you guys get together? Well, everybody's still trying to figure out how to put out a lithium battery fire. What, you literally, it's hard to know how to put them out? You can't. It's, um, yeah, it's a real problem. So you're seeing a lot of stories in the press at the moment, certainly more in Europe, where you'll see an electric bus in downtown Paris be on fire for like a week because you literally can't put out lithium battery fires the, the, from an automatic point of view. Now, there are some fire extinguishers in the market, the little handheld ones. But if you imagine the lithium battery in your iPhone it would take probably a jacuzzi of bath water to put that, put that out, just that small little, little lithium battery. It's a real problem. Is that because they, they burn so hot that they, that they evaporate the water? Yeah, so you've got a couple of problems. The first problem is there's not much warning. So lithium battery, before it's under stress, um, it's, it's, they call it a green gas, but you actually can't see it. It's, it's, you, know, you can't... You can't detect it. There are thermal and there are special now lithium battery detection units that can that can spot thermal runaway earlier. So we we're developing ways now to spot the issue, but we've still got challenges trying to put the fire out. And um, yeah, it's that's that's what everyone in in the manufacturing side of the fire industry is talking about at the moment. Where do you find lithium batteries? I drive an electric car. Is there one in there? Yeah, yeah. Dubai taxis, uh, the, hi- the hybrid, so even your half engine, half half battery. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I'm dazzled that they. I mean, I, I don't. I know nothing about this expert. How have they been put in so many different devices? If if we don't know how to manage them. It, yeah, and that's that's the challenge for our industry is to come up with something really quick. So as I say, we can detect it, but there's, you know, that there there are certain certain fires where you have a certain type of agent that puts the fire out. Right, so you've got powder for. A, so if you go, if you pull up to your your, your your diesel station to fill your car up petrol, the fire extinguisher you'll see next to you pumping the gas will be powder because powder is the best way to put out a diesel fire. Um, but we haven't found that agent yet in volume. There are agents out there that will do it, but the problem is you need so much of it to put out relatively small fire. How worried, as a layperson, do we need to? be about this i mean do they just not burst into flames very often uh no no okay 
That's interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, you're face to face with me, so I just saw your facial expression. <laughs> they can, though, can't they? They can, yeah. They can, yeah. Wow. I think that, did you see the car park that was on fire at Luton Airport? Absolutely, yeah, yeah that, where, where the concrete collapsed. Is that yeah. because there were so many electric vehicles parked yeah, that there? Yeah, that, that started from, from a, a, a an, electric car. Yeah, an electric car, yeah. That I, is genuinely I, um, quite daunting. Though. I reached out to Elon Musk once on LinkedIn asking him if he had the inside track, but he never responded. That is very disappointing. <laughs> I mean, my goodness me, does that man... He doesn't have that. I mean, he's always tweeting he's, absolute yeah, nonsense, exactly. isn't he's he? He's always hanging he out have. with his kids. Yeah, oh, outrageous <laughs> behaviour. Um, OK, let's talk about something a little bit less disconcerting, shall we? <laughs> How about the new tech that is coming on the market that, that you think is making people safer? Um, well, if you look at... Um, there's a lot of tech out there that, that, you know, the fire industry from a tech aspect, it doesn't change that dramatically. What we as fire people try to do is change legislation, right? So in the UAE, there is a legislation around making sure there's automatic suppression in school buses, right? But oh, no, that was a big move, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not in a normal bus. Okay. Right, right? so the, 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 the bus that's going up and down Sheikh Zayed Road or Umm Sakim, that's got no suppression in it, but the school bus behind it does. So tell me how that suppression works and why it's a good thing. Um, well, there's, uh, it's fully automated, so there's no need for any kind of human element to try and put the fire out. Um, there's a warning structure around it, so the, the bus driver can, can pull over and uh, begin the evacuation. Uh, so it's, it's all linked to an alarm in the control panel of the bus itself. It's pneumatic, the, so the detection line itself is pneumatic, so it requires no power. So even when the, the, the bus is parked up at night at 1 o'clock in the morning and diesel's dripping and it's been working for 12 to 15 hours in the day, that still can cause you know, a fire in the engine. Um, and then you just pick the right agent and the right size cylinder for the size of the area that you're protecting. Um, so really straightforward technology. It's, it's something that's been around for quite some time. But it now looks like it's new technology because more and more people are now actually writing it into government specifications for legislation. So uh, I know Saudi at the moment are looking to take on. We're actually doing some big fire tests next week with Emirates Safety Laboratories for our system. Um, our system already has a global approval, but with the UAE and, and with civil defence, they're really up in their game with making sure that the imported fire products are at the highest standard. And now with Emirates Safety Laboratories, they've set their own systems up and their own fire tests to make sure that it meets their criteria as well. So we've got a whole week of fire tests next week. Um, so yeah, it's quite exciting. It's interesting that it sounds like most of your work now, it goes less towards actually putting fires out and more the focus is on preempting fires or yeah. notification, notifications. Yeah, fires. I mean, I've got, myself personally, I've got a, a bit of a pet peeve because we've got all these kitchens in all these apartments all over Dubai and most of the fires that you'll see in the, in the marina or downtown are generally kitchen-based um, and that's just, that's just a, a statistic globally. Um, now, there, as well as us, there are other manufacturers as well that make this really neat, small, um, hideable kitchen system that sits above your hood. So if there's a flash fire, um, it'll automatically put it out, with, again, with the right agent. It's a, more of a wet foam chemical. And so no human interaction needed, puts the fire out, everybody's happy. But there's no legislation here. And to be fair, there isn't really much legislation outside of the U.S., and the UK, and even with the UK, it's student accommodation only, um, that would mandate this type of system to protect domestic uh, kitchens. Really fascinating sector, and certainly uh, lots of conversations going on down here uh, on the subject of fire security and fire tech. Uh, Gary, great pleasure to have you join us on the radio. Thank you very much My indeed. My pleasure. We have Gary on the radio quite a bit, but this is the first time I've seen Gary in his natural habitat, surrounded <laughs> by other fire experts. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been great fun for, that, for that reason alone. Yeah, you're down with the homies. Uh, that's because we are broadcasting live from Intersec. It is the world's leading trade fair for safety, security and fire protection. And in fact, we're keeping on the subject of fire protection next because we are going to be speaking to the head of Heathrow's Fire and Rescue Service. Another Gary is called Gary Bathroom. He's going to be joining us in the next few minutes. Wow, two uh, Gary's in the same industry. Gary's I thought in we were a dying breed. Gary's. No, 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 there's <laughs> Gary's everywhere, and we love it. Big up, Gary. <laughs>
You are listening to The Agenda. This is Dubai I 103.8. From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello there. Yes, welcome back to The Agenda. And it is all kicking off down here at Intersec. It is, of course, the world's leading trade fair for safety, security and fire protection. It is packed. I mean, literally, we're, we're actually, we've been placed just outside one of the halls today. Often we're in the halls and you sort of don't get a sense of the sort of the wider event. Here, at just outside Hall 3, I tell you, I, I, I think about a thousand people are walking past me every, every sort of five minutes. I've never seen so many people. Um, and what's great about being in the middle of the event is that we get to grab the fascinating sort of keynote speakers as they come off the stage uh, and drag them onto the radio uh, drag is a sort of slight exaggeration they they tend to come willingly Uh, and in fact one of them is uh, with us right now i'm joined by gary bartram he is chief fire officer and head of airport fire rescue and service and airport control for heathrow airport the world's second biggest airport we like saying that a lot i'm afraid gary because dxb of course is the biggest so Heathrow is. is the second biggest it is it is it's true it is true um and gary of course one of the keynote speakers here at the conference i'm delighted to say that we've managed to persuade him to spend some time with us here on the agenda gary welcome Thank you. Pleasure to have you with us. Pleasure to have you in Dubai. Uh, You are, as I just mentioned, in charge entirely of fire safety at Heathrow. Yep. Do you often see fires at the airport? Um, Yes. We currently, on last year's numbers, we had uh, over 1,200 calls during the year. So not all aircraft related, obviously. Um, Aircraft tend to be very safe way of travel. Um, But you can imagine Heathrow is like a small city. We've got four terminals. Um, this year we had 79 million passengers. Some of the crew do um, medical response as well for serious incidents. Um, we've got uh, two underground stations, a mainline station, two fuel farms, which are high risk, um, and a whole network of tunnels, uh, of which the main tunnel is the wa- main way in. If you've ever been to Heathrow Airport, it's the main way in. So that is a critical part. So we do aircraft rescue, firefighting rescue, but also the domestic side in the terminals around the road systems. So that's where you end up getting 1,200 calls for the year. We're getting a little bit of a sense there of the potential threats that you are ready for. Mm. It sounds like they go from everything from a toaster fire to a potential terrorist attack. Exactly. So from an aircraft point of view, yes, we go for um, the the worst case scenario, which would be an aircraft accident similar to the one um, you saw a couple of weeks ago in Tokyo. Of course, yes. Um, And then, yeah, from an airport point of view, yes, all the way up to a a terrorist attack. And we plan and um, exercise and train for all those kind of things. We have a series of exercises throughout the year and we pick different scenarios each time. Um, just to make sure we're covering everything. And we work very closely with um, our local authority fire and rescue partners because my fire service obviously is relatively small in the whole scheme. Like London Fire Brigade is massive. massive. So we work very closely with London Fire Brigade, making sure that we've got the policies and procedures to match theirs. And there's lots of joint working, lots of joint liaison training to ensure if we get an incident, that we are working together efficiently. They can send backup, for example, I guess. Exactly that, yes. Because, I mean, the implications of a major blaze at somewhere like Heathrow, I mean, that would have massive ramifications. Heathrow is such a key part of the infrastructure there. Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, we're we're part of the national um, critical infrastructure, as you say. And if the airport shuts, we literally will get a phone call from Whitehall, from from the government. Um, and we've got a whole team um, separately in the comms team that are that are linked in with the government permanently. So when Heathrow shuts, um, there's obviously a massive implication for UK PLC. I mean, last year alone, um, Heathrow had trade going through it for £200 billion. Pounds. Wow. So, you know, if you think of all the cargo, everything that's gone through Heathrow, it, it totals up to £200 billion. So the Fire and Rescue Service at Heathrow, my, my team... Yes, safety is the absolute number one priority, but we've also got to have an eye on um, business continuity because for every second that runway shuts, or the two runways shut, 
chart, I should say. Um, you, you know, you can imagine there's lots of aircraft. There's an aircraft landing every 90 seconds at Heathrow. There's 1,400 flights a day. And we don't op- operate overnight either. So these are... These Not are, like us. No, no. So you can imagine if there's an aircraft incident and we've shut the runway and it can't land, all these aircraft are in the air circling, waiting to land. Then they've got to go somewhere else. And the mass disruption that would cause and then the knock-on effect for UK PLC is huge. You look surprisingly calm, considering this enormous responsibility is resting on your shoulders. Tell me about the tech that you use to protect the airport and and put out fires and ensure that those runways are kept open. Yeah, so we've got state-of-the-art fire and rescue appliances um, with boom technology. Uh, So they've got infrared cameras on the front. Um, We use water foam, dry powder. Um, And we have to have a certain amount of water and foam for an airport because... Every airport is categorised and it's on the largest aircraft that, that lands at your air, airport. So Abu Dhabi, Dubai, same as Heathrow, are all what they call Cat 10, Category 10. And for that, we have to have a certain amount of water, legally have to have a certain amount of water foam. And legally, we have to meet a response time of no more than three minutes. Because the fuel um, can, is a high calorific value if it burnt, in the worst case scenario. So we have to make sure that we can get to the scene very quickly and then help evacuate the passengers we've seen that happen recently and it was very shocking because the pictures are just so shocking there was that fire in tokyo essentially if you didn't see it a japan airlines plane was involved in a collision with a coast guard aircraft and it all took a, took place at tokyo's haneda airport it was a good news story from one point of view because 379 people on board the passenger plane escaped. We really sadly lost lives in the Coast Guard plane. Um, But the fact that they managed to get 379 passengers off the passenger plane is extraordinary. And and that must be the kind of event you train for. Absolutely. Um, The team train every every day, different aspects of it, every week. And we've got a big A380 uh, simulator that we were using. It's just about to come into commission now. Um, And previously we had an older version but the, the team train and with London Fire Brigade jointly because you you hope you never see see that but it's something you have to train for because it's worst case scenario um, but I have to say hats off to the team in Tokyo because from an airport fire service point of view they attended quickly and and made the escape routes um, clear but more importantly the training that the Japan Airlines team had and the discipline that the passengers had to get off that plane. They didn't bring their suitcases with them, for example. Exactly where I was going with it, because they didn't take their hand luggage off. And we've seen lots of incidents. We've had lesser incidents at Heathrow, where people jump off down down the slide with their hand luggage, and that just creates congestion. And, um, and airlines have to practice evacuating in 90 seconds a whole aircraft with only 50% of their exits open. And you saw the um, pictures and the videos from the, from the aircraft internally, and there was a real calmness, real discipline. So really good hats off to those Japan Airlines team. Really good. Well, also, it's interesting you mentioned that because, of course... We don't want to sort of, I don't want to stereotype, but I'm about to. Yeah, no, um, no. Because, because certain people uh, from certain countries are, frankly, better behaved and more ordered. Yeah. Uh, and we don't really know why it is, but certainly you get the impression that people in Japan are very polite and considerate yes. of each other. Yes. And maybe that is why we saw that speedy disembarkment. I think so. But I think it might have been a bit of a wake-up call for some certain areas of the world that don't have that discipline. Yeah. I'm hoping so, because... It is a big problem and, um, you know, the way that they've trained and the way that they even show their videos in front of the the passengers when they get on, because I've seen one recently, it's a lot different from some of the others and it really does um, pictorially show that you take your hand luggage off, you will be blocking aisles, blocking exits and therefore you might block someone getting out. Lessons learned and I have to say anyone who's travelled in this country and I know you're all listening now, we all know, never mind the sort of emergency exit, we all know that half the blame stands up before the seatbelt signs have gone off and to get to be the first to get their bags down. We've all seen it. I've almost considered being part of it, despite my very sort of staid English upbringing. <laughs> when everyone else is doing it, you're a bit like, well, hang on a second, I want to be first in the queue. Yeah. Um, 
tell me a little bit more about um, Heathrow compared to other airports. Is it more difficult to protect than um, airports like DXB, for example? Because it is very much in the centre of the city, isn't it? Whereas DXB, actually, I say that, so is Dubai Airport. Yeah, yeah? it would be similar. It would be yeah. similar to uh, Dubai. They're, they're very similar. As I say, we've got all of these extra pieces that go on. You know, we've got four terminals, and they're all shopping centres, really, in their own... You know, you, same here, same you, here. Same here. Yeah, you, yeah, go yeah. Through, you go through the terminal when you are, you know, you are shopping. Yeah. Um, and you've, as I say, you've got the underground station. So it would be of a similar nature, definitely, at Heathrow. Um, but it is complex. Um, and sometimes you wonder how all the pieces stick together and piece together. But planning, training, strategy all come into it. And if you can keep that and keep on with a, a good process of that, you, will, you should be prepared for any incident that comes. And you should be able to flex if that incident slightly goes differently. And you can, but the, the planning and the execution of the training, etc., that is paramount. One last question for you, and I haven't got long to ask it. About okay. thirty seconds. Okay. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Just that one day, if I'm at home, because I do Monday to Friday, being the, the head when the teams are there, and I get that phone call that comes through and says, like, you've got to come in because on a Sunday um, afternoon. Well, yeah. After lunch. Yeah, after lunch, and and you know something terrible's happened. Yeah. Which you you hope never happens, um, but the team are well prepared. They're well drilled. Yeah. And I've got great faith in him. Really fantastic to have you join us, Gary. Thank you so much for your time. Really fascinating conversation. You've been listening there to Gary Bartram. He is Chief Fire Officer. He's also Head of Airport Fire Rescue and Service and Airport Control for Heathrow Airport. From the Dubai World Trade Centre. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello there and welcome back to the agenda. As you just heard, broadcasting live today from the Dubai World Trade Center and a very busy place it is too, uh, filled, literally filled with people from the fire security and uh, safety field. Did I say safety already? Basically, it's safety, security and fire protection. That's the theme here. But we're not just talking about security on the program today because there's been a fascinating report come out forecasting the travel trends for 2024. It's been published by Skyscanner. And a little earlier, I caught up with one of their experts, Ayub El Mamoun, and he talks me through the key findings from their research. According to the latest Travel Trends Report, which is an annual report that we put together at Skyscanner, combining data from millions of searches on our website and app for flights and hotels, as well as the results of a consumer behavior and study performed with UAE travelers. So according to the report, four key trends were identified um, in the UAE for 2024. The first one is um, travel for sleep. Sleep tourism has been um, trending in the world over the last few years, and people are really looking for those destinations which offer those sleep retreats and opportunities to um, relax and disconnect. And the second one is travel to destinations where um, major films and TV shows were shot. Now, we spent a lot of time um, over the last years, especially during lockdown years, binge-watching a lot of TV shows and films. So now we ended up with those very long lists of destinations that we want to go to. So 2024 will be the year um, to do that. The third one is travel for food. Food and travel have always been linked um, together, and actually 46% of the people that we surveyed in the UAE have said that they have booked a destination in the past purely based on a restaurant that they wanted to eat at or local cuisine that they wanted to um, experience. And the fourth and last one is travel for concerts and gigs. So this is really about going to those neighboring countries to see an artist or um, a band that people didn't get a chance to see in the UAE. In fact, 72% of the people that we spoke to said that it's something they would be open to in 2024 if it saved them money. Really interesting trends, really quite intentional travel trends. How about the priorities for UAE travellers when they're looking at booking their trips? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to three priorities. And the first one is value for money, which will continue to be the most important factor determining the destination for UAE travelers in 2024. The second one is the vibe of the destination. So the overall 
feel and the vibe surrounding that destination. It's not just the money and how much you'll be paying, but also the vibe. And the third one is the culture and the customized experiences. So the things that you will get to, to do there. So in a nutshell, it's the value for money, basically the cost, the vibe of the destination and the things and the culture that you will get to experience in the destination. And so are people mostly being driven to sort of certain destinations? by the trends you mentioned at the beginning? You know, for example, are you seeing a growth in popularity for New York because they're hosting a lot of music concerts there, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of these trends have the culture and the experiences as a common theme and between all of them. And in addition to this cultural curiosity, so people are really keen on going to those less popular destinations that are less known and not the ones that they have been to many times before, which are perpetuated by um, social media and TV. So there is really an interest to look past those um, popular destinations. And actually, 97% of the UAE travelers that we spoke to said it's something that they want to do. They don't want to go to the same places they've been to before. They're open to those uh, new destinations that are less popular. In addition to this, we're also seeing an increase um, in demand. So travel demand in UAE has increased by 54% year on year, which is a lot. This is due to new routes which have opened um, from the markets as basically just people um, really interested in traveling more in 2024. So very excited about introducing the Skyscanner Everywhere agent, which is a collaboration with travel expert, award record holder, and who will be sharing some top tips and recommendations and with people to go to from the UAE in 2024. It's also inspired by the Everywhere search on Skyscanner, which is actually the most searched destination from the UAE in 2024. So that really tells you that people they are keen on traveling in 2024. They just don't know where and they're looking for those inspirations to go to less popular destinations. Yeah, that is interesting. It shows a willingness, I suppose, to be tempted, a willingness to try something new. And I wonder if that's partly because we have quite a young population here in the UAE, quite a young, often affluent population. You mentioned earlier something that I'd like to pick up on, which is that people are traveling for food. They're traveling for sometimes specific restaurants that's a real trend that feels quite unusual to me yeah you're absolutely right it's very unique to uae travelers going to experience specific um cuisine so people are planning on going and exploring destinations purely to experience the local authentic food or to go like you said eat at a specific restaurant that they had online in fact 46 percent of the people in india have already done that um, in the past which is um, impressive and actually if you look at the most searched destinations or the most trending destinations for travelers from the UAE, Osaka in Japan was number one. And it's considered the kitchen of Japan and offering some unique dining experiences on a budget. So yeah, it's an interesting trend. And I guess people are really hungry to go on that food-inspired destination. <laughs> very good indeed. We like a food-based pun. Um, okay, so I've made everyone wait till the very end of the interview to find out, you know, what the top sort of 10 destinations are. Tell me, because I guess they're going to give us all a bit of inspiration. Sure. So I think we can group them into two sets of destinations. So the trending destinations, which have seen an increase in searches year on year, and then the value destinations. And these are the destinations that have seen a drop in prices. So for the trending destinations, the ones that have seen increase in searches year on year, there is Osaka and Tokyo and in Japan. Now, Japan was one of the last few countries to fully reopen following the pandemic, which is why we have these two destinations in the list. People are really keen on going to that country again and start exploring Japan. Japan. We've got Antalya in Turkey. Turkey has always been a traditional popular destination for travelers from the UAE. And we've got some capital cities in Europe like Amsterdam, Rome, Berlin, Paris, and London. We've also got New York, which is a long haul um, destination from the UAE. And it saw a 62% increase um, year on year. So people are really planning on going even to long haul and far destinations. For the value destinations, these are the ones that saw a drop um, in prices. We've got the Maldives, we've got Orlando in the US, Rome and Berlin, as well as some other um, destinations in Europe. And as you can see, they all have this culture and experiences as a common theme between all of these destinations. I'm interested by um, the fact that they're value destinations. Does that mean that the cost of flights and hotels has gone down and therefore you might have a bargain? You might get a bargain if you go to those countries. 
Yeah, so you can try a few things in order to find a good deal. Just because you're booking last minute doesn't mean that you can find a good deal. When it comes to prices, yeah, we're seeing a strong demand, a strong increase in the interest in travel this year. I know it's only been a couple of weeks into January, but and we've seen some really positive momentum. But for those people who haven't booked or they're waiting until last minute, there are a few things that you can try, such as being flexible, setting up price alerts, and just being flexible with the date that you want to travel, the destination, even the airports that you're departing from. That was Ayub Al-Mamoum. He is one of the travel experts at Skyscanner, bringing us up to date uh, with their latest survey, uh, which, of course, looks at the travel trends for 2024. From the Dubai World Trade Center, this is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello there. Welcome back to your Agenda program. As you've just heard, we are out on the road. We have gone out and about. We're live here from the Dubai World Trade Center. Uh, It is Intersec today, huge trade fair, big focus on security, big focus on fire protection and also safety. Uh, Lots of people talking about cybersecurity, a whole bunch down here as well. Um, We're bringing you the latest uh, from all of those sectors. It's a really interesting day, but we're also keeping one eye on all the top international stories lines around the world. And uh, one of the big ones is that volcanic eruption on Iceland. It's poured lava into a fishing town called Grindavik. It set the houses on fire. And that is despite defences being built back in December. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, uh, but it really is a picture story. I've never seen anything like it. It's like um, it's like a horror film in some ways, you know, an action movie. Um, Two fissures opened. Even the language sounds like a horror film. Two fissures opened and magma has poured into the town that formerly housed 4,000 residents. And for Birgitta Karadotir, it's the second time that she's actually had to evacuate her home in a couple of months. The uncertainty and the not knowing what's going to happen and waiting to see and constantly refreshing your news outlets just to see if there's any news or any change and hoping for the best. It must be absolutely awful for the residents there. You know, a, a proper sort of nightmare come true. We're going to find out a bit more about the latest situation. I'm joined now on the line by Tira Schubart. She is a science journalist. She's actually currently based in Reykjavik, of course, Iceland's capital, and she very kindly joins us on the line now. Tina, Tira, thank you very much for your time. Tell me, what is the latest this morning? Good morning from Reykjavik. Well, the latest this morning is that the the eruption is still at a relatively low level um, after after shooting up about uh, more dramatically about 48 hours ago. It's just the lava flow is slightly less, but it's still persistent. And the geophysicist, the Icelandic Met Office here, tells us. The eruption is not yet over, and that is the problem for the people of Grindavik. Today, they're having their largest meeting so far, and they're going to make a decision on how to go forward. But the problem is the situation remains uncertain. As one of the geophysicists told me, uh, we do not have eyes down there under the ground. Iceland, very vol. So Iceland, a very volcanic country. is that why we are seeing such dramatic eruptions such as this? Yes. Um, the location of Iceland is that it's on top of, and here we're going to go back to some uh, basic geology, these two massive tectonic plates that meet in the middle of the Atlantic. And when, the, when tectonic plates meet, that's, that allows a crack for the magma that's deep inside the center of the Earth to rise up. Iceland's actually a nation that was built from lava. It was built because of volcanic eruptions over the geologic eras, the, the millions and millions of years of our, the Earth's creation. So um, Iceland is used to volcanoes, and there have been many, many eruptions over the years. Um, but only this is only the second one in modern times that has come up under that has in in, uh, in the last fifty years that has come up underneath the town. Um, at, the volcanoes provide thermal 
heat for this very cold island. It's very cold right here um, in the winter, but it gives thermal heat that heats up the houses and the factories and the businesses. Uh, it allows you to have greenhouses in the middle of the snowy landscapes here that grow lettuce and tomatoes and all sorts of uh, delicious vegetables. But also you have the problem of a volcano coming up underneath a residential area. And that's what's happened with so, Pacific. So tell me, how is this affecting the community? I mean, we heard a little bit there about the disruption from Bergetta, but, but I imagine it must be really quite traumatizing. It is traumatizing. And one of the things that the government here does is they will be supporting them psychologically. Um, the community is a very tight-knit community. Uh, many of the, I was with the uh, Grindavik City Council who are, um, as they say, sort of in exile in the Reykjavik, uh, in Reykjavik at the moment. I was with them yesterday. In fact, I spent the weekend with a third-generation Grindavik resident. Um, they're a very tight-knit community. It's a beautiful little place. And they are now dispersed around around parts of this uh, this island. Uh, they The children are split between four different schools and people are living either with their relatives or in rented temporary accommodation. The government is, I, I was speaking to the prime minister on Sunday night um, and the government uh, is giving them support in terms of paying salaries for businesses that are closed down in Grindabay. The government has picked up those salaries. The government is paying the rent on any housing they're doing. And yesterday the cabinet met and agreed to extend the support. And in fact, next week in Parliament, a bill will be presented that will extend the support even further. But the loss of community, as you say, the loss of community, tight-knit community, there's nothing you can do that is not going to be solved by throwing money at it. Tira, I've got about a minute left with you, but, but I'm intrigued to know whether it looks like the town will actually be rendered uninhabitable. Well, that is exactly the question they're going to be speaking about today. And the problem is with, uh, with, with a volcanic eruption is, as the, as the geophysicists told me, um, we do not have eyes down there. Has the lava flow stopped or will it continue? It has already destroyed much of the infrastructure, although they're trying to repair what is still there. Would you want to be living in a town that might have another, uh, another eruption, another flow of lava? That is the question. Tira, thank you so much for joining me on the line. That's Tira Schubert there, a science journalist who's currently based in Reykjavik, which, of course, is Iceland's capital. Absolutely fascinating to hear uh, exactly what's going on on the ground there. So huge thanks to Tira Schubert uh, for her time. From the Dubai World Trade Center. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Intersec, innovating security tech for a quarter century. Hello there and welcome back to Intersec. Yep, we are broadcasting right here, right now, live from the Dubai World Trade Center. Uh, but this is the time we each day that we do the sports news and some things don't change. Some things are consistent. Uh, and in fact, we are joined now by Chris McCarty. He is, of course, our sports editor. And he sent over this report summarizing all the latest sporting headlines. Well, good morning, Georgia. Mr. McCarty, happy Tuesday. Hope all is well. And well, listen, it's your daily dose of sport. Let's start, if I may, with the glitz and the glamour from over in London last night. It was the best FIFA awards night. No real surprise to see Lionel Messi, the evergreen Argentine, walk away with the top prize. He actually finished dead equal with Erling Haaland. But in a count back as to which of the two earned the most first place nominations, it was Lionel Messi who did just that, and he walked away with the top prize. Pep Guardiola, his former Barcelona coach, he was named coach of the year. And as for the team of the year in terms of players made up of a composite side, well, Manchester City had six representatives, of course, Man City winning the treble last season. That's the most from one side. You've got to go back to 2010 when, again, Pep Guardiola was coach 
of Barcelona. So well done to Messi. There was a loads, a host of other winners on the night. Uh, bon Mate, Tama Bon Mate was named FIFA Women's Player of the Year. No real surprise given all that she achieved in 2023. So yes, a great uh, night all round from the football to tennis. Now let's get you back today with the Australian Open. I guess the big news from yesterday, Andy Murray, five-time runner-up in Australia, three-time Grand Slam winner, beaten in straight sets. He hinted afterwards that it may well be his final Australian Open. Of course, 36. He's had to battle a number of ailments in recent years, namely that hip problem that required hip surgery. He's had it resurfaced and he really has been a shadow of his former self. I guess the other big shock from yesterday, Naomi Osaka, four-time Grand Slam winner, making her return to action for the first time since the US Open. That was back in, what, September 2022. She'd become a mother in the intervening period. She returned. She was beaten in straight sets by the wily French woman, Caroline Garcia. So Osaka out, Murray out. As for today's action, we're waiting to see our first glimpse of Carlos Alcaraz, Emma Raducanu. She's also in action against a tough American in the shape of Shelby Rogers. So there are a couple of standout names to look forward to this morning heading in to the afternoon. So I get you ban up to date with the sport. You've got Emirates FA Cup third round replay action to look forward to both tonight and tomorrow to keep you occupied. And from an American football standpoint, I want to go there if I can. Wildcard weekend it wrapped up in the wee small hours of this morning and the big story Philadelphia Eagles beaten in last year's Super Bowl it knocked out Tampa Bay Buccaneers routing them in a bit of a shock that of course Philadelphia Eagles coming into the playoffs having lost five of their sixth final and regular season game so that not a great result for them so yeah that gets you back to eight uh, the other one incidentally buffalo bills beating the pittsburgh steelers and that will see the bills now take on the chiefs in a rematch from two years ago that was really a game for the ages so that's a nod to all you nfl fans out there but that gets you back up today a reminder we're building up to a busy weekend locally the hero dubai desert classic in the world of golf, that tees it off on Thursday down at Emirates Golf Club. Emirates FA Cup action to look forward to. Ongoing Australian Open as well. Yeah, plenty for Robbie and I to get our teeth into. Chris McCarty there, head of sport. Huge thanks to him for sending that uh, report through for us. Uh, and of course, if you want more Robbie, if you want more Sonal, and if you want more Chris, uh, you can catch them on your drive time show every single day. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.